Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the first Universalist, I'm rusty, <laughs> Unitarian Church. My name is Roxanne Borneman. I really am a member of this congregation. <laughs> I've become one of those people I used to gossip about not attending. Um, I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors who are joining us this morning. Since 1858, UUWASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, your ethnicity, or your economic condition. Wherever you happen to be on your life's journey, you are very welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of the classes being offered or at the variety of events that are scheduled. So if you can, subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook or Instagram or updates. I do have a couple of announcements. So this is the third Sunday of each month and we offer our um, financial gifts to a member of the community who comes forward and educates us a little bit about what the needs are in our community. And today I'm really delighted. It's the first time I've met Maddie. We have with us Maddie Phelps and she is a senior at Wausau West High School and she's gonna talk to you about what the community and what the schools are doing to assist our youth in supporting their mental health, a really, really important topic. I'm sure most of you are well aware, but you're gonna learn more. And then the second announcement today is, um, we're delighted that a Peter Mayer will be joining the UUWASA the weekend of October 21st and 22nd. He's an accomplished Unitarian Universalist songwriter and performer. He's the musician who wrote the beloved hymn, Blue Boat Home, I do remember it. And he's gonna be giving us a free concert um, here at UUWASA on Saturday the 21st at 7 p.m. He's also leading worship at UUWASA next Sunday. And so with that, would you please join me for our opening words and chalice lighting. You'll find the words in your bulletin. Even when our hearts are broken by our own failure or the failure of others cutting into our lives, even when we have done all we can and life is still broken, there is universal love that has never been broken, faith with us, and never will. Please rise and spirit our body for our opening hymn. Number 146, Soon the Day Will Arrive.
Well, with Jess out this morning, the story for all ages falls to me. I sometimes, or rather, I most of the time like to let you choose your own adventure. This morning, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm just going to suffer you a story from the archives of this church circa 1942. Have you alive in 1942? No, a couple of people sort of lift their hand this far. That's what it was. <laughs> so in the early 1940s, this church went through a forced ministerial transition. A beloved minister by the name of Noble McLaughlin also holds the record for the coolest name of the ministers in the history of this church, Noble McLaughlin. Anyways, he tragically died of a heart condition before he was even 55 years old. And so the church went into a deep mourning. And eventually, when they came out of their collective mourning, they called a new minister, a man by the name of Brainerd Gibbons. Now, Brainerd was a controversial guy from the outset. If you think about it, this is right around the time when Universalism and Unitarianism started to change ideologically. You had sort of old classic Universalism. They talked about Christ on every Sunday. They did communion on the first Sunday of every single month. It was a very, very traditional institution. And so was this church. And at the time, the most prominent active member of this church was a gentleman by the name of Cyrus Yawkey. Maybe you've heard of him. His house is a museum just a short walk from here. So as the church was courting Brainerd, because anytime a church calls a minister, is it sort of like a really bad version of dating, where everybody's like, hey, you look all right. And then the minister goes, you look okay. And then you kind of date and you exchange things. Anyways, so they were courting Brainerd. And Cyrus was beside himself. Now go back in time to the era. It was the 1940s. Tradition. Women married to men. Period. End of story. That's all that happened. Brainerd was actually a divorced man. He was an attorney in Manhattan who had clerked for a Supreme Court justice. So he also came with all of these skills and these attitudes. And Cyrus showed up to his interview and said to him, you have lived a life that I disagree with, that this tradition disagrees with, and I think that you will challenge the moral bedrock of this church. I don't think a divorced minister has any place in the pulpit. What do you think Brainerd did? What would you do? You'd probably make You'd probably, what, go on, like, Facebook Messenger and make fun of someone, right? You'd find some good meme on Instagram that makes fun of traditional people and you post it, right? You try to dunk on people like that. That's what you do. And that's exactly what Brainerd did. Brainerd, though, went to the technology of his time and he wrote a letter, this long letter to Boston, and he said basically this. He said, this dumb old traditional fussy know-it-all thinks that he's going to tell me what is and isn't acceptable in a church. He even made fun of him. At the time, Cyrus was really ill, and he had a debilitating illness, and he had a lot of difficulty walking around. He was disabled, is what we would call it today. Brainerd actually, in a letter, uses a very offensive and derogatory term to mock him because he's disabled. 
I won't repeat that word because I think it's that offensive that he uses it. So it starts off, and probably the most influential member who you don't want against you. In ministry, there are some people you can afford to have against you, but every once in a while there are people you cannot afford to have against you. Cyrus Shockey was not a man you could afford to have against you. They started off against one another. Imagine that. That's how it started. So anyways, ministry progressed as ministries progress. And then World War II happened, and it disrupted this church in an amazing way. Lots of men and women from this congregation went and served in the war. And as the war slowly unfolded, Brainerd felt called to leave his ministry and serve in the Navy as a naval chaplain. And guess who he called up on the phone to tell this the first time? He called Cyrus Shockey on the phone. I've read the letter. He says that he went over to Cyrus's house, and at this point in Cyrus's life, he was very, very ill, had a very, very difficult time walking around. And he said Cyrus insisted that they take a walk together. And so they walked down to the river. And Brainerd said, I feel called to lead this church to serve the war as a chaplain. Now bear in mind, Cyrus had been part of World War I. He knew the cost of war. He had seen it firsthand. And so what Cyrus said to him, according to Brainerd in his letter about this meeting that they had together, is he said, Brainerd, no one knows the cost of war until you see it. He said, but if you feel called to go, the only thing I can do is bless you. Will you let me bless you? And then Brainerd and Cyrus, two enemies, morally opposed to one another, spiritually opposed to one another, grabbed one another's hands, and they prayed. I don't know what you call that. I call it grace. I call it something short of a miracle. Brainerd ships off to war, and Cyrus dies. They never see each other again. That was their last meeting. Now, I don't know what to call that, but I'm always looking for instances of meetings like that that are happening in the world. And so, in light of recent news, the conflict in Israel, Israel and Gaza and Palestine, I'm going to tell you a story that I found in the pages of the newspaper that is sort of like this story, because I hope maybe one day the kids in this congregation, and maybe the adults, if there is any hope left for the adults in this congregation, that maybe you'll be something like this. And so I was reading in the newspaper this story, and maybe you did. About 10 or so days ago, there was a rave in Israel. Do any of you know what a rave is? My mom watches these. I've been to a few raves. Just don't tell my mother. Anyways, <laughs> they are um, very vibrant party atmospheres with very strange clothings and lots of stuff. Anyways. There was one of those in Israel, um, and everybody had an absolutely wonderful time. But as you know, in Israel and in Gaza right now, it's a dangerous place to just walk the street, right? And so there was this woman from Brazil who had attended this rave, had a wonderful time of, her, of, of you know, the evening, getting to dance and meet new people. She's in a foreign country. She's getting to cut a rug with some Israelis and some Palestinians. And she walked out of the rave and some fighters came by, and she was killed. 
She's visiting a foreign land, dancing in a rave, and for the crime of leaving a rave, she died. She was killed. Well, her family went onto social media and they said, how are we ever gonna be there to get to mourn our child? We can't get past any of these roadblocks. We can't get into this country. They didn't know what to do. They were beside themselves. What would you do? Just imagine to be separated from a kid or a sister or someone you love. Anyways, this is what ended up happening. More than 8,000 people, Palestinians and Israelis, went to this place where the rave had happened. And they said in the absence of some family member being able to be present with someone whose life was robbed from them, we will be present. It caused traffic jams just to mourn the life of this young woman. Again, I don't know what to call that, but I hope a part of whatever happened between Cyrus and Brainerd and whatever happened in the hearts of those 8,000 people to want to be present in the moment of suffering, I hope that some of that lives in us and it grows in us like a seed. So with that, I'm going to sing our children's song as we dismiss our kids to their classes this morning. I'd like to invite everyone to join me now in a spirit of prayer and meditation. I want to encourage you to start by uncrossing your feet if they're crossed and putting them flat on the ground. But if it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed, now's a good time to close them. Let's start by centering ourselves and our bodies. Focus your attention on your jaw first. If there's any tension in there, let it out. Take a slow breath in and out. Move your attention downwards into your chest, your heart. And now take a deep, full breath into your chest and slow out. And now another breath, this one deep and full into your stomach. and slow out. Let us pray. Astonishing spirit of healing and hope. In light of compassion, we cannot hide our eyes 
the broken, hurting places of the world. We pray for an end to war and violence, that love will lead every person and nation along the path of peace. This morning we hold especially close the people caught up in and fleeing the fighting in Israel and Gaza. We pray also for those who are sick in body and heart and spirit, that they'll be held in loving arms and given comfort. We pray for those who mourn and for those who are close to death. We pray for loved ones and strangers and for our own needs. We pray for those for whom we have promised to pray and for those who cannot pray for themselves. Now, friends, let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives. Let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for hymn number 108 in the Gray Book. My, hi- my heart flows on in endless song. Thank you. 
As I was looking over our bulletin, I realized I skipped a part about everyone greeting each other um, at the beginning of our service, so my apologies. Like I said, I'm a little rusty. Um, but I know where we're at now. Um, this is an important time. I'd like to introduce you to our speaker today, and Maddie Phelps is going to come up. She's from, again, like I said, Wausau West High School, and she's a part of an important movement and that is to support mental health. Um, a warm welcome to Maddie. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, like Roxanne said, my name is Maddie Phelps, and I'm a Razor Voice Officer at Wausau West High School. As a club, we're part of a larger organization that has branches throughout the area. These branches are all under NAMI, or the National Alliance on Mental Illness, that created this club. Branches in the area include Merrill High School, Marathon High School, Anago High School, DC Everest High School, Wassa East High School, and my high school, Wassa West. As a club, our main goal is to create a more mental health friendly environment in our school and community. The Wassa West branch of Razor Voice has done multiple things within our one year of being part of this club. For example, last year we did a school-wide activity for Valentine's Day. Our officers cut over 1,000 paper hearts, one for every student in the school. Every student in the school received their heart during their homeroom time. With these hearts, the students were asked to write down one thing they like about themselves. These hearts were then turned into our club advisor. Our Razor Voice officers, all nine of us, worked hard to string them onto separate strings that were then hung in our commons area. The commons are a place where all students go at least once a day during their lunchtime, so they were on display for the whole school to see. This activity proved to be a great way to spread the word about our club and create a more mental health friendly environment. Another thing we did last year was put sticky notes on everyone's locker that had a kind message about them. We wrote things such as, you have a great smile, or simple motivational things like, you've got this. Our club heard a plethora of great feedback from teachers who, say, who saw the smiles on people's faces when they arrived at school and found a kind message waiting for them. A huge factor in poor mental health in youth is feeling like they do not belong, so our goal in this activity was to combat that. Our biggest event last year was the walk run. We brought students and members of the community together to run or walk for mental health on a one mile loop around our school. Their admissions fees went towards a pool of money that was donated to North Central Healthcare. We made over $1,000 in profit that went towards this organization. We are planning on making this an annual event, so it will take place again this spring. This is where a majority of our dona donations go towards, for things such as raffles and foods to be provided for the walkers and runners. So far this year, we held a cupcake sale to raise awareness for our club. We sold cupcakes for a low price and gave away stickers to spread the word about our club. During the sale, not only did we bring smiles to everyone's faces, but we also got about four pages of new member signups on our email list. We recently had our first monthly member meeting. This meeting was a green bandana training. Green bandanas are given to all who go through the mental health training on how to be a good advocate. The bandanas are then tied around the students' backpacks to signify that they are someone you can go to as a resource or just as a safe person to talk to if you're struggling. This training goes over which terminology to use when referring to mental health terms, how to reduce the stigma around mental health, and how to talk to somebody who may be struggling with poor mental health. With over 50 attending members at our first meeting and just under 100 students signed up, 
our club strives to make a difference in our school. Our officers also recently attended a summit with other branches of the club in our areas to learn how to better educate our club members. This is something we do frequently to stay updated on how to best advocate, adv advocate for a more mental health friendly environment. Any funds that would be donated would go towards our annual walk run or other activities that we put on in the future. Our profit from these activities is then donated to a local mental health advocacy organization. Any money that is donated would be greatly appreciated and would be circulated back into the community to make WASA a more mental health friendly environment. The youth mental health epidemic is not something that can be fixed with one small club, but with the help of our, help of our community, we can ensure changes for the better and hopes to someday eradicate the issue. Thank you. Thank you, Maddie. <clears throat> Brian and I were commenting you couldn't have paid us when we were in high school to get up in front of this group and speak so eloquently. An important need, and I think we're all aware of what the need is. So at this time, we're gonna be passing the basket and all of your donations will go directly to support all of the activities um, that Maddie was speaking to. Thank you very much.
reading I selected for this morning's sermon is a section from Annie Dillard's book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She writes, There is always an enormous temptation in all of life to diddle around making itsy-bitsy friends and meals and journeys for itsy-bitsy years on end. And it's so self-conscious, so apparently moral, simply to step aside from the gaps where the creeks and winds pour down, saying, I never merited this grace, quite rightly. And then to sulk along the rest of your days on the edge of rage. But I won't have it. The world is wilder than that in all directions, more dangerous and bitter, more extravagant and bright. We are making hay when we should be making whoopee. We are raising tomatoes when we should be raising Cain or Lazarus. There it ends our reading.
So I would say that we are social creatures. And the language we use says a lot about the people we spend our time with. Very often we hear a phrase spoken by a friend or someone we admire, and then we start using that phrase ourselves. So back when I was a hospital chaplain, one of my supervisors was a former Marine drill sergeant. And, and he really liked to bark orders at me like I was a soldier on his own personal battlefield. This drill sergeant supervisor of mine, he also had a lot of pet peeves. And nothing, nothing got this man more worked up than the phrase, it is what it is. So I said it all the time. <laughs> if you paid attention in English class, you will recall that sayings like it is what it is, and English teachers here, it's a what? It's a tautology. I had to practice saying that word this morning. That is to say, the second phrase adds nothing to the first. It is, right? But we use phrases like this all the time because they're helpful. I sort of think that this one helps us say something like there's, I don't know, there's no use regretting or wasting time on something we can't change. Now along these same lines, I want you to think about how often in our culture we talk about control. When I typed articles on control into Google yesterday when I wrote this sermon, it returned for me 9,110,000,000 results. That's more articles than there are people on the planet to read them. The first article, if you're wondering, is entitled, Why Losing Control Can Make You Happier. On any given day, you are likely to encounter phrases on control like self-control or our apparent lack of it. Birth control, crowd control, damage control, pest control, quality control, air traffic control, and mind control. Or you could walk around any building and you'll pass what? A control panel, a control room, or a remote control. We've grown so obsessed with control that we've actually developed an entire vocabulary that helps us see how our attempts at control can be destructive or dehumanizing. There are phrases that we have developed to describe these instances like what? We call someone a control freak, a helicopter mom or a helicopter dad, or the dreaded backseat driver. Given all of this, I think it's safe to say that one of the defining features of our era is obsession with control. Now, this isn't an entirely bad thing because it helps us produce safe medicines, it designs cars that keep us and others safe from harm, and it also lets us fly without incident very regularly from point A to point B. But, but our obsession with control can also lead us to forget how much is beyond control. Like when you make friends, whether someone loves you, when you get sick and how bad you get sick, 
how you're feeling on any given moment, or the big one, when you die. But knowing this doesn't stop us from pursuing the illusion that we can control everything. Case in point, churches like this one have dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of documents that seek to do what? Control my behavior. They have other dozens and dozens of documents that seek to control the board's behavior. And even, friends, I'll have you know your behavior. And you're all failing, by the way. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Only half of you are failing. Furthermore, ads sell you products that promise control from everything from aging to your waistline. Moreover, you can pull out the phone in your pocket, and what can it do? It can control the locks, the curtains, the lights, and the thermostats in your home. They can control people who are right now across town, and with the push of a button, you can control those people, and you can get them to prepare for you a car that you can later rent or buy. The phones in our pockets can control people who will reserve a seat for you at a restaurant or on an airplane. They will control the local pharmacist who at the push of a button will count the pills you need in time for you to pick them up before kickoff. I can give money to advertisers that will control what you see on the internet. And media companies seek to control your thoughts with carefully edited photographs and clever articles. In that spirit, a reclusive cartoonist might have something to say about our obsession with control. So just last week, the heavens opened up for yours truly because Bill Watterson released a new book called The Mysteries. Now, many of you will recognize Watterson as the total genius behind Calvin and Hobbes. Any readers of Calvin and Hobbes in here? Great. Okay. So, The Mysteries... I'm going to spoil it for you because I'm going to tell, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know, leave because I'm going to spoil it for you. The Mysteries, I re- as soon as I got it, I sat down and I read it like 15 times, it's great. So The Mysteries is about a kingdom plagued by disasters no one can explain. And so the king in this story, he's desperate to save his kingdom and so he sends an army of knights to discover what on earth is causing this disaster. And so finally, after several terrifying years, one battered and bloody knight returns to the kingdom. Academics study it, scientists dissect it, journalists pontificate about it, philosophers philosophize about it. But eventually, after everyone gets what they want from it, they stop caring about this mystery that the knight brought back once and for all. Right, the knight did us this great service of capturing the mystery. We investigated the heck out of it. And then we did what? We cast it to the curb. Because people, what they did is they once marveled at the mystery. The mystery did what? It inspired art and poetry and invention and architecture. And now people just stroll past the mystery-inspired masterpieces like a penny on the 400 block. Now, if anyone speaks of the mystery, it's mostly to say 
it's not that impressive anymore. It's a relic of the past. And so with the mystery captured, people stopped wondering about what they don't know. Now, knowing everything, or so they think, these people spread outward from the kingdom into the lands. And what did they do? They took and used and abused absolutely everything they wanted. And they invented airplanes and cars and telescopes and spacesuits. They invented money. They invented coffee shops. They invented poverty. They invented drive-through windows where underpaid people will hand you overpriced coffee. But one day, the sky turns a strange color. Now, important people went to the news like important people like to do, and what do they say? It's all under control, folks. They said, we know what's up, but they were lying. All the while, the wizards of old, they marveled at what they were seeing, and they took note of the strange things in the sky and on the ground and amongst the people. But I bet you can guess what happened. The sky keeps getting stranger, and then the animals start acting weirdly, and then the winds rise up, and poof, everything disappears. Years turn into ages, and ages turn into eons, and in the end, all that's left is what? The mystery. You should still buy the book from Yonki. Now, there's more than one way to interpret this story, of course. Maybe it's a lament about secularization. Maybe it's a lament about humankind's destruction of Earth. Maybe it's a lament about our obsession with control. Maybe it's a lament of this era's functional atheism, as I like to call it, that thinks we can save ourselves from the very destruction we've caused. Now, you can decide for yourself after you read the book. Let me know what you think it's about. Now, the mysteries reminds me of this very, very old ancient story that I've been studying for a while from the Old Testament in this book called Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is about this dude by the name of Moses. And at one point in Exodus, what he does is he goes on top of this mountain because he's heard through the grapevine that up on top of this mountain is a list of rules that will help him and his people be nice to each other. You've heard of this before? Now, him and his people, they've just escaped from Egypt where they have spent the last several generations enslaved. But now they're alone in the wilderness. And they're what? They're hungry. They're scared. And they're led by this self-doubting complainer named Moses, who, by the way, has a stutter so bad that he has to enlist his brother's help to speak for him. And so Moses, he's hiking up to the mountain, and back behind Aaron, and everyone else starts to freak out. They decide that their only hope is to appeal to absolutely every god they can think of. And so they run around the community and they say, give us all your jewelry. And so they grab people's engagement rings and earrings and toe rings and nose rings. And they melt it down and they shape it into a big golden cow. Why a cow? I don't know. And then they make sacrifices because they think it will get them the control they want. 
They're so desperate for control, they even talk about going back to their slaveholders because what they say is at least we'll know where our next meal's coming from. Now, right about this time, Moses comes back down the mountain from his hike and he sees everything has absolutely descended into chaos. He sees brothers killing brothers, neighbors killing friends, children who have been abandoned by parents who just run around yelling, you only live once. And so Moses throws a fit, but eventually he comes to his senses and he reminds everyone that they were made for freedom. He says, you were made for freedom. And with this freedom that you were made for, your responsibility is to learn how to live together. Like the mysteries, there's more than one interpretation. But I'd offer that this ancient, ancient tale is a cautionary one about humankind's obsession with control. You can melt down all the metals you want. You can follow the coolest or the strongest ruler who went to an Ivy League school. You can kill people who make you feel unsafe. You can abandon your children. You can worship a god or you can worship no god at all. But none of it will change the fundamental fact that at some point you are not in control. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you should just give up. And of course, there are rules that make life a bit easier. Rules that make society run a little smoother. Multivitamins you can take that will aid your circulation. But there's nothing you can do to stop a runaway bus. You can't stop your kid from sneaking out of the house, concealing an outfit that you forbid underneath their hoodie. You can't stop it. The mysteries and the story of Moses and his people in the wilderness leads me to three points I want to make. The first point comes by way of a story. And so back when I was on sabbatical, I spent some time in Cambridge, England. And one night I popped into one of the prestigious colleges because I wanted to hear a lecture I had seen advertised on the topic of how to be a productive leader. The speaker, what he talked about was how in the modern era, many jobs demand that you spend a lot of your time in front of a computer, often fussing with email. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Lots of big head nods. So even McDonald's does this. I'm not scared to admit it. I love McDonald's. Don't judge me, I don't care. But even McDonald's does this. I don't know about you, but the last time you went through the McDonald's drive-through, were you not greeted with this question? Did you use your app for this order? In other words, what McDonald's is always asking me is, did you use your email like a civilized human being, or are you a caveman who still uses their voice to order Diet Cokes and French fries? I am a caveman who asks for my fries and Diet Cokes face to face. That's how I am. I don't use a computer to hide my shame. I like McDonald's. Anyways, what the speaker told us is that those of us who are driven to be hyper-diligent workers, and you use, my gosh, if this isn't a room full of type A people, I don't know where else you go. Anyways, for those of us who want to be hyper-diligent workers, the ones who respond quickly to emails and zero out our inboxes, guess what ends up happening? In the end, invariably, we end up being some of the most highly, if inefficient, workers on the planet. 
He observes how it's been proven that employees who read and respond to the most emails end up what? Getting the most emails in return. And so in other words, your best intentions become your worst enemy. It made me realize that if I spent all those extra hours responding to every little thing people sent me, I would never, no matter how hard I tried, end up in control. But it made me face a tougher truth, and it's this, that perhaps I'm more concerned with control than I am with the job I'm supposed to do. And this leads me to my first point, which I'll offer in the form of a question. Are you more concerned with doing what needs to be done or with being in control? Next, the news this week, accompanied by thousands of reactions to it on social media, show that many people just repeat what others say about topics as complex as religion, culture, and international relations. It's as though some people really think that solutions to intractable problems can be summarized by a response on Twitter. The mysteries and the story of the people lost in the wilderness suggest that one of the things that should guide us is an awareness that while human beings are smart and powerful, we're never fully in control. Often, the things we do lead to things that we never anticipate. And this leads me to my second point. Knowing that things can and often do go badly, when the going gets tough, what or to whom are you obedient? Now, it's a four-letter word with all you you use. I get it, it's dangerous territory. Obedience is a touchy subject. But the truth is, obedience is the acceptance that we are not always right, and that the story of our life, the story of humankind, isn't totally about us. I once heard a professor from Harvard, believe it or not, he is Harvard's professor of happiness. I don't know how he got that job, I want it, but that's his job. He recommended that every year what people should do is a reverse bucket list. Here's what he said. Don't ask what you want to do before you die. Ask who you want to be. Here are the two questions he said that every single person should sit down on their birthday, open up a journal, and you should answer these two questions. Number one, why are you alive? Along these same lines, who created you and what have you been put on earth to do? The second question is what are you willing to die for? Why are you alive and for what are you willing to die? What both questions focus on is obedience, what we dedicate our lives to. Behind both, I think, is this question. What have you put your trust in? And that's my third point. I'll summarize all of them real quick. Do you live in service or do you live in search of control? Who or what do you pledge your obedience to? And finally, what have you put your trust in? I'm going to end with a story, though. I'm going to bring it up to this moment. 
So just a couple of weeks ago, the mother called the church and she asked to get a copy of her son's baptism certificate. This happens from time to time when people get married for various reasons, they need a copy of their baptism certificate. And so while searching the church's records, I couldn't help but thumb the records going all the way back to the 1800s. It's a touching thing to do if you ever have a chance to do it. Because what you see is that thousands of parents, they brought their kids here and dedicated their life and living to this church. And then I started thinking about the children I baptized. I thought about the last baptism I did, which was for two children, whose parents, I'll have you know, carried very little (laughs) about the baptism. But they had a grandmother who insisted. Any powerful grandmas in the audience? This was a powerful grandma. Believe it or not, she flew all the way from Ukraine to Wausau to organize this baptism. And she picked this church among all the others to baptize those grandchildren. And I got a call a few days ago from someone affiliated with the family to let me know that that grandmother died in Ukraine. And so ever since I got news of her death, I can't help but think that one day when those kids get older, they're going to learn that their grandmother, who they barely got to know, brought them here to be baptized. And it made me start wondering, I wonder what it's going to end up meaning to them. But then it also made me wonder, I wonder what it means to all of you. What does it mean that these kids were baptized here? I'll tell you what it means to me. What I hope is that one day those kids will see that they were baptized into a faith that is composed of people who leave behind the story of control to inhabit a story of trust. That they were dedicated into our belief that the best thing you can lead with is your heart. That they were dedicated to a people who don't turn away from the suffering of the world. That they were dedicated into our faith that trust that human hearts can inspire and move the minds of the world. That they were dedicated into a faith where the last word is never deaths, where the last word is God's. It's love's. It's life's. With that, let us sing our closing hymn. Let there be peace on earth.
if you'll receive the blessing, I invite you to reach out, take the hand of someone nearby. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat. Relax, enjoy the postlude.